Welcome to Profiles in Eccentricity, a show about weirdos, with your hosts, John Fahey and Darren Peter. Hello, folks. Welcome to Profiles in Eccentricity. Uh, we are a show about weirdos. My name is John Fahey. I am joined by the prettiest co-host on the earth, Mr. Aaron Pita, question mark? And also another gorgeous fella by the name of... Matt Brousseau. Hey, oh, Matt! Hi. Three good time boys in a booth. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah, we're like, we need to get more white men on the show. <laughs> Straight? It's just straight, straight, straight. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron said to me, he's like, you would understand as a, a straight, <laughs> straight, you, straight guy, straight guy, you straight. Folks, we have recently added Matt as a uh, co-host. Yeah. Long overdue. Uh, I want to introduce him a little bit here. Uh, Matt, uh, we know from the stand-up circuit. He very graciously agreed to record our little program here. I wanted to do this project for a long time, and everything just fell into place, and Matt was a big part of that. Matt's a really good friend, great stand-up, and he also, like I said last episode, he uh, does the Bleak and Review podcast with Kevin Anderson. Mm-hmm. Old Ban Anderson. Yeah, old KB Anderson, yo. You guys are hundreds of episodes deep at this point, right? Yeah, Aaron and I appeared on an episode, second most listened to episode ever. Yes, yes. Out second. of a hundred Hey, go back and listen to it. I was staggered when I found out. Me and Aaron went on Matt's uh, show, and we did a set of three different characters each. Man. And uh, we got really carried away and really stupid, and apparently (laughs) listeners liked it. Yeah, really steamrolled the episode. Those are good characters, though. It was okay. fun. John, it was John really, thanks for letting us do that. It was really, really fun. We'll put a link up on the Instagram or something. Yeah. To whatever episode that was. And, uh, yeah, we hope to appear again on the program. I'd love to. Hint, Matt. Hint. 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 Hard nudge. Folks, this episode, I want to talk to you about a story that is very near and dear to my heart. And I just want you to uh, think about what all of this this guy's life that I'm going to talk to you about would feel like. I'm going to talk to you about a chess champion. One of the most famous chess champions known in America is Mr. Bobby Fischer. Passed away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I feel like Bobby Fischer winning the 1972 championship, world champion chess championship against a Soviet Russian champ is basically... To talk to idiots like us, seriously, the basis of Rocky IV. Oh, yeah. Like... He captured the world's heart and... and Americans were not interested in chess before that. And during that championship, chess just sold, man. Mm-hmm. It, and it was it was this huge thing. Bobby Fischer was this kid that grew up in Brooklyn. And he was just one of these guys where, you know, like, he got into the game at a very young age. He was... Uh, child of a single mom um he had a sister and he was home alone a lot and he would just kind of wander down to the the chess club nearby and watch and he became this prodigy at a very young age like a lot of these chess champions do and at like 14 he was on tv you know i started rising through the whole thing ends up culminating in him going against the soviet chess champion why it's so similar to the rocky 4 idea is something you have to understand about Soviet Russia, after the revolution, was they knew they were a huge superpower. So they were like, here's what we're going to do to show, like, to kind of flex on the world. Anything that we compete in artistically or sports wise that we're like okay or good at, that's going to take a backseat. Anything we're good or great at, we're going to become indisputably the best in the world. So that's how, like, Russian ballet. Mm-hmm gets all of like the government resources behind it and starts pushing it. And very much in league with that was chess. And the reason why it's like such a David and Goliath story with Bobby Fischer beating Boris Spassky in 1972 is because America didn't care. Mm-hmm. It was just really resting on this one fucking weirdo from Brooklyn. Yeah, this child of a single mother in Brooklyn, not a lot of fanfare against, you know, a guy who had the entire red machine behind him. Yeah. But the thing that's that is also 
<laughs> I'm so talking to stupid people by bringing up Rocky IV. But there's a part. But we are stupid. We are stupid. And uh, we're dealing with heavy handed stuff. So um, there's a part in Rocky IV where Dolph Lundgren's character. Yeah, yeah. Ivan, Ivan Drago. Is like, I don't do this for Russia. I fight for me. Right. And that is something that really applies to these chess champions, too, because they come from all different walks of life. Like, it's not as if there's some corporate shill for the mm-hmm. communist thing or whatever. Gary Kasparov. Grandmaster, you know, and very much his own guy. Very much his own guy. Uh, currently, mm-hmm. v- the leader of opposition to Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, seen as you know a, a famous person willing to say this guy is no good. He's got to go. So there's always been these kinds of people. Bobby Fischer went. Bobby Fischer got called on the phone from fucking Henry Kissinger while he was in this battle. Which the, the 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 neutral zone chosen between the USSR in 1972 was Iceland. Yeah. So they had the battle in Reykjavik, and it went on for days. Bobby Fischer was a real brat about the circumstances, how far the audience would be to, you know, them on stage. He did a lot of him and Han kind of about you know how much money and all this stuff. But everybody wanted this to happen because Fischer was such a phenomenon. And everybody knew that this guy had a real crack at it. And, you know, the Russians equally wanted to be like, no, you're not going to defeat us. There's no way. And so despite all of his objections and and, and stuff like that, it's 1972. You know, the USSR did not fall until much later. And there was a lot of paranoia on all sides. People thought that the Americans tainted the seats with LSD. LSD. Yeah. Yeah, There's a great documentary called... Bobby Fischer versus the world, I think is what it's called. And I think it's on HBO. Oh, Pawn Sacrifice. Oh, is that what it is? Pawn Sacrifice yeah. gets into... They said that he had an IQ superior to Einstein Fischer, but he's also a child man, you know? Yes, uh, hor- he's on the spectrum. He's paranoid. Yeah, horribly misogynist. Yeah, um, anti-Semitic. Yeah. And, and As a, a Jew. And 100% Jewish. Yeah. Uh, he had his name removed from a book of notable Jewish people. He was like, no, 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 I'm not Jewish. And his sister would come to him and be like, what's this stuff about we're not Jewish? Yeah. Because he had an you know, absentee father who also was Jewish. Mm-hmm. It came to be found out. His pattern recognition and his paranoia and his connecting of dots really kind of took over his 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 everyday waking life yeah. later, in his later years. But he was he was a phenomenon. And he was also like, we're, kind of, we're going deep into Fisher here, but he was like tall and good looking and well built, and he was really, really popular. Yeah. Once, once these these world championships happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but but he he's just like he's got the, some of the most insane quotes attributed to him. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's he said so so much like disgustingly anti-Semitic things. Yeah. If you look at his list of quotes, and again, believed to be one hundred percent Jewish, mm-hmm. um, mother and father side. Mm-hmm. And there was a great quote they they say in that Pawn Sacrifice documentary where they say, to be a great chess player, you have to have this immense paranoia of what could happen on the board. And the minute you take that paranoia off the board into real life, you can just completely undo yourself. And it seems like that's really what he did. He got involved with something called like the World Church of God. Mm -hmm. They got like all of his money. Uh. Yeah, he became like involved with some evangelical fucking right. nightmare. Said, I mean, uh, very, very pro nine eleven. <laughs> oh <laughs> was, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was uh, him and Doc Dart. very hostile to um, the yeah. Him and Doc Dart were very on board with nine eleven. And then he was supposed to have this this celebrated, I think, ninety eight rematch with Spassky from seventy two. His his opponent. And they did it like in disputed uh, Yugoslavian territory, which was considered a, a crime, that, yeah. you know, like a sanctioned territory. You can't do that. So he was now banned from the U.S. after that. And in the meantime, he's grown completely paranoid while he's been involved with all this church stuff. And he would believe that the Russians would be listening to through his fillings and his teeth. So he would pull them all out. And uh, uh. and he just uh, he never fixed it. And uh, then he was in uh, Japan for a minute. And every, everybody... See, the chess community is such a breed of weirdos to themselves. Like, everybody's a maniac, and everybody treasures this thing that they consider a beautiful art form. Like, Marcel Duchamp, famous artist, 
very famous for for entering an, uh, a thing in an exhibit called Fountain, which was just a urinal. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was, like, mind-blowing at the time, even though he did it, like, as a prank, mm-hmm. you know, and basically, like, a fuck you to the art world. But people took off being like, this is genius. So, you know, it was a huge part of creating all this contemporary, modern, ironic artwork, you know, kind of, you know, thumbing their nose at the art world. But at a certain point, Duchamp gives up art because he says, not all art is chess, but all chess is art. Mm. And these grandmasters, these champions, they will go over games from guys centuries before them, move by move, to think about what was going through their head. Yeah, you're walking. It's like reading a novel. Yeah. And you're walking in the footsteps of someone's mind, but you're doing it in three dimensions. Yeah. So there's 64 pieces, 64 squares on a board. Right. right? And there's 16 pieces on each side. Right. There are more combinations of chess moves than there are electrons in the universe. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. And these guys, they'll memorize games. They go over them and they'll just, they'll quote, you know, knight, queen's knight takes king's rook whatever and they'll just play them out yeah it's it's like another language these guys are speaking and it takes a special kind of like awareness about uh the universe to to think that way and it must alter your perception i mean clearly it does it makes you nuts yeah i mean um fisher saw some guys playing and it's just one of those things where you know whatever nerdy shit you're into you just see a thing at a young age and you're like that's the way i'm going the man we'll be profiling today, Alexander Alekhine, in Russia, he saw an American champ by the name of Harry Pillsbury. He saw him play 12 men blindfolded. Yeah, I've heard of this. And he was like, that's it for me. And the you guy, know? and I think Pillsbury beat nine of them? Yeah, yeah. It's like one of these things where you're like, you just like, you see it and you're like, oh my God, that is it. A lot of these guys have those experiences. Obviously, Fisher did too. Fisher... After his time in Japan, he can't go back to America, and he's, he's you know, sanctioned internationally. And who stands up for him but a bunch of chess champs and the government of Iceland who put, he felt like he put Reykjavik on the map by holding this 1972 championship in their country. And then he moved there. Yeah. Well, they lobbied for him to be allowed to move there, and then he was allowed to. And everybody said he just kind of lived out his days, like, looking like a homeless guy. Doesn't want to fix his teeth because, you know, they're listening. Of course. He's borderline, you know, wearing a foil cap. And uh, he gets really sick and he ends up in the hospital and he's looked after by this doctor and all night he's kept up with pain and he's like, you know, very antisocial, of course. He's been antisocial his whole life. Just tragically lonely figure. And his last known words, or he woke up in pain one night and he and said- we're still talking about Bobby. Bobby, yeah. yeah. He said- um, I said to the doctor, uh, he's like, my feet are just in agony. He's like, Would, you know, can you massage them for me? So the doctor's doing that. And his last known words were, um, nothing soothes pain like human touch, which just it's is heartbreaking, devastating. Yeah. I learned about Bobby Fischer from a book called Bobby Fischer Goes to War. And a lot of the podcast, as I said before, is based on reading books and then seeing some little side character and being like, hold on, who the fuck is this guy? And uh, this guy we're going to talk about, Alexander Alekhine, is one of those people. Um, his... As a matter of fact, this is the guy you pitched the podcast about to me. Yeah. Was this this guy. Yeah. In the uh, 10th episode, this is finally getting to it. Yeah. I know we usually talk about cum. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this episode, I just want you guys to go on a little journey with me. Um <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I want to—I really want to talk to you about something that, honestly, uh, it just this story just touches my soul. Hell yeah! This is from Chess.com. They wrote this brilliant six-part biography of Alexander Alakine. This is how it begins. Imagine this is you. It's 1918, and you're one of the strongest chess players on earth. You live in Odessa during one of Russia's most chaotic periods. Trying to stay on top of the political upheaval, you take whatever side offers the best chance at survival. Unfortunately, being a captain in the czarist army turns out to be the wrong choice. And you find yourself tossed into prison and sentenced to death by firing squad by Trotsky himself. Doomed and waiting for the axe to fall, four days pass in your cell when the door opens and several people enter. One of them is Leon Trotsky. The guy who sentenced you to death. One of the founders of the revolution, Leon Trotsky. A guard tells you that Trotsky wants to play a game of chess with you. And a board is set up and you end up with white pieces. 
it quickly becomes clear that the people's commissioner, quote unquote, is no match for you. But when you can end the game and wipe him out with a few sharp moves, you hesitate. What should you do? If you lose, will Trotsky be merciful and let you live? What will happen if you win? In fact, does it even matter? Most likely, you will be shot in either case. You agonize, play some weak moves so the game can, can continue, and continue wondering what the best course will be. This is the, the dilemma Alexander Alakine faced. He kept the game going for a while longer, then silently cursed himself and began the mating sequence that would drag down the Black King. And then he waited. Trotsky resigned, quietly rose up from his chair, and left the room. Alakine was released the next day. Claim it for your freedom. This is emblematic of the times and the circumstances that will afflict this guy throughout his entire life. Alexander Alakine is considered one of the best chess players that ever lived. He uh, was born in 1892 to a very wealthy family in Moscow. He started playing chess at 10. He was an amateur champ at 17. Before this, before becoming an amateur champ, he's not naturally talented at the game. Hmm. He's in love with the game and loses and loses and just learns from every loss. You know? Hmm. Some of these other guys like Fisher... Capablanca, who he would later, uh, Alakine would later take the championship from. These guys are naturally gifted, just phenomenally talented, naturally artistic players. Alakine is not. He does like a dogged, purposeful, move by move, every minute, every second studied thing. It's, it just takes work. Mm-hmm. And it goes on and on. His younger brother plays, and he's also great, um, not as good as him. But, um, you know, born into this kind of atmosphere, he has, you know, a leg up to do this kind of game. You know, he's a wealthy guy, and he becomes a uh, grandmaster under the czar, Nicholas II. Uh, 1914, war breaks out, and he's, you know, won, like, his first championship that would amount to, like, something like 11,000 euros, right? So he's starting to make a little money off the game, which is... The game is not taken too seriously at this point, you know? Like, it's taken seriously by just the wealthiest class of people, but most people really don't know about chess, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's also coming at a time when the world is going to war, as you and I have discussed before, there's also this thing where, like, chess champions in other countries can look at each other and be like, oh, he's good, oh, he's good. Yeah. And you would just see diagrams, and you would be like, you know, rook to b4, and you would know what all that meant, and you could read a whole game and watch it all play out and see... It's like reading music. Yeah, all of these guys can, like, when you talk to a chess champion, they won't talk to you about the tragedy of Bobby Fischer or Alexander Alakine's life. They will talk to you about the triumph and tragedy that happened on the board. They will just talk to you and be like, do you know about this game? Yeah. Do you know what happened here? Do you see this massive fuck-up this guy did here? And do you see this brilliant thing and this outlandish opening? Alakine was very famous for a few different moves that were became part of creating modern chess. And I won't get into the technical side of it because a lot of it I don't understand. But um, Alakine's defense was a big part of having like your rook come out and kind of court disaster mm-hmm. to draw out yeah, pieces. Rod. But that was considered an opening defense move. He did another another thing named after him called Alakine's Gun, which actually mm. has a video game named after it now. No shit. Yeah, which is a setting up a thing where there's a uh, a queen hidden behind two rooks in a row, hmm. right? And um, he would use these various things at different times, and he would, you know, sometimes like I mean, he would pull Alakine's gun out, you know, 14 years after he had originally used it, and then never used it in between. So mm. it was like this. He just had this brilliant style that people just adored, you know? But so, yeah, he, he's captured during the, the First World War with a bunch of other chess champions. <laughs> By who? By the Germans, okay. right? For Russia, for the Tsar, right? Mm-hmm. And he's one of four released, and he, he has to sneak his way back into Russia. But there's some crazy stories about how he got out. Like, he was supposed to be not one of the Russian guys. Like, he took somebody else's identity of one of the guys that was still imprisoned, one of the other seven that remained of the 11. And he uh, appeared in London, and um, he came to the uh, the chess club, and he said he was one of the only French and Russian representatives to get away, and it's astonishing to hear, but he basically risked his life getting out. But he was also pushed out by them. They were all saying to him, you are so great. You have to be one of the ones to escape. Take my identity, please. Seriously. Jesus. Yeah. And he makes his way back to Russia, and he starts competing again. 
and he's just rising through the ranks. He's already been declared a grandmaster. And he's in his 20s at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Soviets now, like I said, they've decided, okay, if you're a fucking chess champ, we want you to be the best in the world. He, he, he did serve, you know, before he was captured, he served on the Austrian front for the Red Cross. Then he had the whole thing go down in 1918 where the, the Soviets captured him fighting again for the, for the czarist. Um, he becomes the first USSR champion after they decide he's basically not much of a threat. But he's met all these people through chess going abroad anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And he comes from, after, after he started winning uh, chess tournaments growing up, he moved to St. Petersburg, which was like the czarist capital of Russia. It wasn't Mas- Moscow, even though he was from Moscow. And so he's kind of fallen in love with just the chess community. And it's like I said to you, like, it's like comedy. You know what I mean? Like, you're just like, you become a comedian. You're like, I love this world and mm-hmm. I love these people and I respect oh, this. off in the art. same way. Everybody's fucked up in the same way and you find some kind of camaraderie there. And, and no matter who you are, what, you know, what kind of walk of life you come from, you can all kind of nerd out on the same thing. Yeah. Even and, your opinions and, may differ. Sure. And people will just have a reverence for you if they really love your art. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what you come from. Yeah, it's a great equalizer. So through the war, he's met all kinds of international people, and he starts going abroad, and um, he's, he started looking at... The chess champion at the time was a guy called Lasker, right? And Alakine knows as he's at, that he is not naturally talented, that he does need time to grow, and that it will take years, again, like comedy. You know, he knows his station. He knows I'm not that good, but I will be one day. And he sees another rival from Cuba by the name of Capablanca. He sees him coming up and he sees competitions happening. And he's just like, I won't, I'm not going into any competitions with that guy because that guy's the next champion. Hmm. So he's not even worried about the champion Lasker. He's worried about this other champion, Capablanca, right? And he has the foresight to know that seven years before Capablanca becomes champion. He sees him playing and he's like, that's, that's the next one. I mean, like, amazing foresight in a very chess way. (laughs) You know what I mean? Moves ahead. Yeah, moves ahead. He's just like, I can't lose to that guy now. And Alkine has a lot of reverence for all these grandmasters. He's got a lot of respect. And it sometimes at the board, it would shake his confidence because he he really respected all of these guys that he went up against. And so he's getting better and better, but he avoids Capablanca. And even though he's got this kind of idea that he doesn't want to do it, in 1921... He decides, fuck it, I'll go up against him. And he loses, right? And it really devastates him. And he has another poor showing in 1922, and it just ends up with him being horrifically depressed. And at this point, he's just on the international stage traveling for the USSR, and he hasn't gone back since 1921. But after losing the tournament, he goes into this huge depression, and... He, this is a contested thing, right? It's not known if it's entirely true. But he goes in to face Capablanca, loses, loses the 1922 tournament, and then in the company of his friend tries to kill himself. And he's, he's, this guy, this friend meets him, right? Then this guy wrote books about chess and never revealed this until after Alakine was dead, right? Because they were friends, you know, but he was, he just wanted to show the extent to like the lengths of darkness that Alakine could go to. They meet each other in France. He's like, I happened to be there. We had a good, seen a good deal of each other since the beginning of the year. And we spent time together at an evening party celebrating his birthday at the hotel. He shared intimate details of his private life and pictures of his loved ones. We played as we did from time to time, several training games in preparation for the great Vienna tournament. All of a sudden, in a fit of despair with no previous warning, Alakine attempted suicide by stabbing himself in the belly. <laughs> like while he's hanging out with his buddy. It was about 3 a.m. and the main hotel lobby was deserted except for the two of us. Alakine collapsed lifelessly at my feet. I summoned the hotel personnel, the manager, a physician, an ambulance, and the police, and whoever else was needed. Things seemed grave and Alakine remained unconscious. However, thanks to prompt and efficient assistance, he came too. A few days later, he recovered. This event, just a few days before the Vienna chess tournament, was not without significance. I spared no effort to dissuade Alakon from participating, for I was convinced he would do badly, but there was no keeping him from competing. 
and he achieved one of the worst results of his career. <laughs> oh, days after stabbing himself in the stomach? Yeah. So the guy the, the guy writing this group, the fantastic biography on chess.com says, of course the story can't be proved or disproved, and since chess historians tend to accept that what can be verified, most refuse to believe it really happened. However, I feel that there's a very good chance that the events are true. In fact, even one of two of the following points may have led him to end it all. Depression, overwhelming stress, failure in his own eyes, loss of a life dream, loneliness, and facing a situation with no end in sight. I should add Mr. Edmund Lancel, the man who had the account, wasn't some unknown person. He was the editor of a lovely chess magazine, and he was known to be close friends with Alakine, and a couple of his games against Alakine were published. On top of that, Mr. Lancel also published a book that was co-authored by Marcel Duchamp. Uh Uh-huh. It's hard to find a more credible witness. It just kind of sounds like the move he hadn't tried before. Yeah, and I mean, these guys are dark, bleak guys Mm. that live in a, like, they live in their, like, in a world in their own heads. Like, in that fantastic book, Bobby Fischer Goes to War, they're, you know, taking him out. He's now an American celebrity. Like, guess what? You're getting treated like fucking, you know, suddenly, you know what I mean? Like, you're, hey, you're... You're the sports star of the nation. Yeah. So a couple of dudes take him out to a strip club. And he's been playing chess with them before. They take him to a strip club. He walks out of the strip club and he says, what about Bishop to A2? <laughs> like the whole time he was thinking about the fucking game. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. these guys are just on another level. Yeah, you know like when you're in the shower and you're having like a fake argument with someone, mm-hmm. like, oh, and then I'll say this, and then they say that, and they'll probably fucking say this, and then, uh. They're doing that all the time with chess moves. Yeah. And they're thinking, okay, well, if he does this, I will do this. And then, yeah. I mean, the permutations and the, tr- the the decision trees that are going through these guys' heads at all mm-hmm. times, I mean, there's a reason they built computers to play the fucking game. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it takes a, a real neurosis, yeah. you know, Anybody anybody can be good, but do you want to be great? Yeah. Because there's a price. Right, right. And so he goes back to the game. He, he recuperates. In the meantime, you're doing a lot of tournaments and stuff like that. So there's always ongoing. They're always there's, playing. There's always an ongoing discussion about who should face the champ, who should face the champ. And now we have a world chess champion. That's still a new thing at this point, right? And Capablanca is still it. And he is a master. Like, if Bobby Fischer was... Bobby Fischer would go to the chess club in Brooklyn and talk to people that saw Capablanca play in person, and they were just, like, awestruck. They were like, this guy is so naturally, beautifully talented. And 1927 rolls around, and he becomes champ against Capablanca, right? He beats him, finally. After winning a bunch of tournaments and just getting his shit together, he just fucking... he he finally, at that stage, achieves a level of talent capable to defeat Capablanca. And it's a massive upset. It's a massive upset because Capablanca is, again, one of these naturally talented guys. And Alakine is a guy who you can see his failures mm-hmm. recorded again and again. You know what I mean? But he slowly gets better. It's just one of these things of tenacity and just sticking with it, man. Just fucking sticking with it. And around the same time, he started disparaging as a St. Petersburg guy, a guy that did fight for the czar. Mm-hmm. He starts talking shit about the USSR, and he hasn't been there since 1921. Right. And what year is this now? 1927. Okay. And the Soviets are like, he's no longer a Soviet citizen. He no longer fights for us, and we consider him an enemy. All right? Mm Mm-hmm. So this guy has now been exiled by his native land, right? He's been captured by the Germans. He's been captured by the communists. He's been exiled from his home. He stabbed himself in the belly. Yeah. So he becomes the champ. He travels the world. He goes to Hawaii. He goes to Hong Kong. He's playing everybody. And he is just soaring above everybody. And in the meantime, you know, the old Capablanca is like, fuck this guy. You know, he's still considered a a, a major contender. But these matches, it should be explained too, they take a long time to set up because these guys don't make much money. It's not a very respected art form so it takes a long time to put together a purse to make it worth going to another country to play a guy at a fucking match on a table Mm -hmm. you know and it takes years and the longer time goes by the bigger the purse needs to become so now suddenly you got to come up with your own side of money like for you to play me you'd have to come up with a hundred grand right because we're playing for a purse 
but we both got to bring shit to the purse to play for. So you got you got to get loans, and you got to mm-hmm. get people to help you out, and people think that it's worth it. People from the international chess community, or people from your government, or whatever the case may be. This takes a long time to happen. But he's going around in the meantime, playing for just tournament purses, which you know he knows he can go in there and clean it up, and he's doing that. He sets a record playing thirty-two people blindfolded. <sighs> right, like just astonishing. He marries in 1934 his fourth wife. <laughs> okay? Oh. Some of these marriages have lasted like a year, but they're always older women. <laughs> All right? This woman, Grace Washar, she is 16 years his elder. Wow. Right? And she's his fourth wife. In the meantime, there's this Dutch mathematician rolling around, coming through the ranks. This guy goes up against him and is like, I deserve a shot. Right? And everybody agrees. Capablanca is like, yeah, he's fucking... He's no good. You're going to trounce him, whatever. And Alakine goes in there, you know, full of hubris or whatever, and loses to the Dutchman, right? And he is devastated, right? Especially since Capablanca was, like, in this guy's corner, yeah. like like a WWF manager, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, fuck him. Fuck Alakine. And Alakine had started drinking really heavy in, like, the early 30s, right? Right. When he was a young man, he really drank at all, but it was something that would end up kind of cursing him for most of his life. But after losing to Max, you, he quits booze, right? And he goes into just training, 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 training. He replaces one addiction with another. And he comes back in 1937 and trounces the Dutchman, just destroys him, right? And there's a there's a new USSR champ coming through the ranks of the Soviets, Mikhail Botvinnik. And Mikhail Botvinnik is like, uh, I'm next. I deserve it next. In the meantime, Alakine has become a citizen of France, right? He's taken that on as adoptive home. He took years to get, but he, he becomes a French citizen. And he lives there with his wife. And next thing you know what happens, but World War II breaks out. <sighs> Whoops. And Alakine is in France fighting as a sanitation officer <laughs> for the French army. <laughs> sanitation officer. One of the most brilliant tactical minds uh, right. on the planet. <laughs> yeah. Cut up that shit. Yeah. No, but that's a tactical move on his yeah, part. It is. Yeah, it sails sure off is. enemy lines. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, before that, he was in the Red Cross, so mm-hmm. there you go. But yeah, he's a chess guy, whatever. But it's, it's just important to remember, there might not have been much choice involved, but... When any of these international conflicts broke out, he was always involved on some side, or even the Russia Revolution. He was involved on some side. Yeah. Um, He's at a time when you kind of had to be, you know? There was no fucking choice, man. Like, it, it was just, you know, it was a nightmare. So France goes down, and here come the Nazis. And the Nazis come to Alakine, and they say, we know who you are, and we know your wife's family's Jewish, and have some money. <sighs> And we're going to kill all of them and take all of their shit unless you start playing ball in chess for us. So for the next couple of years, like the Nazi chess champ is Alexander Alakine. Playing for the Reich. And he is a part of that is also coming out and saying that Jewish chess players are inferior. (laughs) Bobby Fischer probably. Uh, the amazing <laughs> contrast with Bobby Fischer, yeah. who's, who's a Jewish guy saying insanely anti-Semitic things, and then this guy who's married to a Jewish woman. Well, but he's forced, of course, at gunpoint, right. you know, at, at uh, the point of, of having the whole family killed and, and, and wiped out. And he just has no choice, so he's got to come out and start saying Jewish players are inferior. And he comes out and... He came from Russia where there was multiple chess champions that were Jewish, and he shared great friendships with them. So in hindsight, a lot of the chess world has been like, well, this guy obviously never thought that because he lavished praise on multiple grandmasters that were Jewish and shared friendships with them and was married to a Jewish woman. You know what I mean? And in the statements that were either not drafted by him at all or drafted by him under duress... Like, the names of his friends were misspelled. Uh-huh. So it was, like, kind of like a little wink being, like, I'm obviously not really saying this. I obviously don't really think these things, but I really have no choice. And so the war goes on through, like, the early 40s, and he's going all around playing for the Reich. And just, it's, 
and it's we've talked about this before too, but it's it's hard to forget, folks, that in the 1940s you were still in the modern era, and for a year is a long fucking time. Yeah. And in 1940 in Europe, on some level, life had to continue as normal. So you would have things like the very famous Nazi Titanic movie come out that I told you about. Oh yeah, that's right. So you 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 know. Uh, uh, Goebbels would be pushing out art, and people in France would be going to see the 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 Nazi movie. What's the Nazi Titanic movie? The Nazis made this movie that they say every Titanic movie since has been based on. And the way that they kind of Nazify it is that they set the crashing of the Titanic into the iceberg that it's like alerted by a German soldier that happens to be on board, right? Are uh, the good Nazis? Yeah. Right, so this movie was released, but it, but it was only released in the occupied territories of Germany because they thought if they showed it in Germany, people would see an analogy between Germany going down and the Titanic. This is how deep Goebbels went into people's psyche. Yeah, this is a total fucking side street, but I do have to tell you about it because it is a complete eccentric profile in mm-hmm. itself. Is the the Nazi Titanic movie? Mm-hmm. But they say like a night to remember mm-hmm. takes tropes from this. James Cameron, mm-hmm. his Titanic takes tropes from this, and it was they did have an actual you know huge ship in the movie, and it was docked in Poland after use, mm-hmm. and during the making of this movie, there was a lot of German soldiers involved, and there was a lot of uh, sexual assault by these Nazi soldiers on women involved in the production, and in the occupied territories, it did receive fantastic reviews. Like people said, like this is a great movie, and. Apparently, even still, in hindsight of it being a Nazi movie, people still say it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. But the tragic epilogue to this movie is that the actual boat they used in the making of the movie, they then later filled with Jewish people and sunk it. So, <laughs> that is, uh, that's a little sidebar about the uh, Nazi Titanic movie. Um, <sighs> but... So, like I'm saying, you know, you got people going to the movies in France. You got mm-hmm. shit is going on, and you just assume maybe the Nazis win. Yeah, maybe this is the new. This Ma- is the new world order. This is the new life. Yeah, and this is the way things go on. Mm-hmm. And Alakine rolls with it, and then things start going bad, and he is looking for a way out. And he's yeah, because tra- he's right now he's fighting on. You know, he's playing for what will be the losing side. Well, also, also, I mean, obviously, they're a nightmare. A little sidebar about his brother, Alex. After uh, um, Alekine, he's Alexander. He's, his brother is Alexei, or Alexei. Uh-huh. Alexei? Alexei, yeah. Yeah. He was trotted out by the USSR after uh, Alexander trashed the USSR to say, mm-hmm. like, oh, my brother's a dickhead, blah, blah, blah. Of course, probably with a gun to his head. And then later, his younger brother comes out and says stuff of, like, I hope the Germans win against the USSR, and then they shoot him. So now his brother's dead. So he gets a chance to go to Portugal to fight a match, and the Nazis don't really care about keeping tabs on this guy because they got their own problems with losing the war. And they also aren't really hostile about losing him because they don't want the Reich's champ to be a Russian. Right. It doesn't fit with their it whole doesn't fit with the whole, race. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. fit with the whole thing. So they're like, fine, go the fuck over there. So he gets out, and then he's trying to get his wife out. He can't get his wife out of France. And she's she's 16 years older than him, and she's just like, I'm here where I am, and I'm not going anywhere. And now he's just alone. And he's got no money. He's back on the bottle, hardcore. Again, like, he's still the champ. He's still the chess champion of the world. But he's uh, supposed to go to a tournament in London, and basically the world chess community comes out and says... All that stuff that you said about the Jews wasn't okay, and we are no longer having you. So he's exiled from from chess. Yeah, his as home. the he's champ. A, yeah, he's been exiled by his country. He's lost his brother. He's his lost wife. his wife. I mean, this guy just every single circumstance where he should have been triumphant, he's just denied every single opportunity. And he just starts living in some fucking hotel in Portugal. And he's just desperately sad. People that have seen him, they were like, he used to be have like a paunch and be like a chubby fellow. And then I got off the train and I saw him. And he, he was the kind of guy that was like holding his hand out, hoping you would hold his hand and be like, do you understand? <sighs> like, do you understand? Do you understand? And um, 
I got uh, I got this fantastic book while looking for uh, for the um, the book that I originally discovered Alexander Alakine in. I went mm. to the Iliad in NoHo. Great bookstore. Fantastic used bookstore. And he's living in this hotel, and there's a well-known Belgian tutor and violinist by the name of Newman. And he ended up living in this hotel, and he said, It was a sad time. I used to give music lessons. I would become very tired and would hurry back to the hotel to rest. Each time, Alakim would be waiting for me in the hotel. He was terribly lonely. All day, he had literally no one to exchange even a word with. To understand the depths of Alakim's despair in those days, one only had to look at him. Twenty years have passed, and even now I shudder when I remember his condition. On top of everything, he had once again begun drinking a great deal. Somebody said, with what? He didn't have a penny to his name. I said, when a man has nothing and people around him have something, there was always the hope of receiving charity. Even such a trifle as a glass of cognac or wine, he was, after all, the king of chess. Sitting in my room, Alakim would often ask me to play him something. He was especially fond of one song, an old song, Don't Sew Me, Mother, an Old Red Saraphan. Seraphine is a Russian peasant woman's dress. There would be two of us in the room in semi-darkness. I would play my violin. Neither did I have, or never did I have, such a listener as Alexander Alakine. He would sit quietly, immobile, his fine head hanging down over his chest, his eyes closed, his eyelashes moist. Alakine was extremely sensitive, and there was something incredibly delicate about him, which was especially apparent when he was listening to music. What did he see? What was painted in his imagination? Was it his birthplace, his own people, or his mother? Don't sew me, mother, a red seraphim. Suddenly, in the midst of this bleak despair, comes word that Mikhail Botvinnik wants to reinitiate discussions to fight for the championship. And to bring Newman him back in to, to bring him back in. And chess people that have wanted to speak up for Alexander Alakine start speaking up. And they're like, he should be allowed to fight this battle. This guy should be allowed to legitimately win the chess championship. And this violinist, Newman, is suddenly like, he's like, I just, suddenly there's this glimmer in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And he's got this thing. And he starts talking about opening moves and what he's going to do. And he's like, what if I do this fucking crazy surprise thing? And he's like launching these new strategies and like crazy things. Newman says, I woke late one day and waited in my room for breakfast to be brought. There was a knock on the door and the waiter came in. From the look of him, I sensed that there was something wrong. I asked if the waiter was ill. He said, no, I'm all right. He was whispering, and his lips had turned blue, and the tray in his hand was shaking. I said, what's happened? He said, Alakine is dead. I said, when? How? He said, I was taking him breakfast. He was sitting at the table. Yesterday's supper had not been touched. Although his napkin was already tucked in, he was dead. Alakine died sitting in front of a chessboard with the pieces untouched. Alone. Now, people say the official autopsy report says that he died choking on a piece of meat. Mm-hmm. But this waiter says his food was untouched. Now, this is where things get interesting. Mm-hmm. Because if you were choking on a piece of meat, maybe you would have fallen on the table and knocked over some chess pieces. Mm-hmm. So people have speculated that maybe there was, it's not 1946, mm-hmm. time of his death, the war is over. There may have been people that were uh, looking for cooperators with the Nazis to assassinate from who knows where. Could have been the Portuguese secret police. Some people said that they happened upon his body outside the night before and that he was shot Hmm. and then dragged inside to make it look like it was whatever they said it was. But people really believe, including Alexander's son, Alexander Jr., says that the long arm of Moscow finally reached him and they just never forgave the betrayal. And a lot of people think that there was some idea that you're going to go up against our new USSR chess champion. And possibly win? Probably, yeah, right. Not going to happen. You can't do it. That's their MO. Their MO is long-arm tactics. Yeah. So this this book that I got that was written by another Soviet grandmaster, he he wrote this book in, in 1975. So whenever they have the English translations, there's always notes from the editor like, well, this is probably bullshit because they were still a Soviet country at this point and blah, blah, blah. Right, right, But there's, I mean, there's some things that are, uh, that are just, so, so devastating. They visited his grave. He had a grave in, in Portugal, and it was eventually people were like, come on, let's bring this guy home to France. And his wife died in the meantime before his grave in France was erected, and uh, she was buried with him. And uh, this guy, Kotov, that wrote his biography, Alexander Kotov, he goes and he, he, he's escorted by the, like, the caretaker of the graveyard, and he's like, um, there's fresh flowers here. Who brought them? And he goes... 
they come from all over the world from chess fans. It's hmm. so like all the time. Yeah, I mean it. It is an art form. You know, like you can connect with somebody if you if you have the if you get it if you get it. You, it's a song. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a, like it's no different than people go to Morrison's grave in Paris yeah. or, or you know Elvis or whatever. Like yeah, you connect with what he was putting down. And and it's even you know when it's so complicated and and technical and nuanced like chess is you it's all, everyone who is a fan is by definition a super fan yeah because it selects for that type of person it's also I mean if you get into the drama of sports and I think Matt you can you can understand this too like there is things where it's like ah oh, he was hurt or he was tired but when it's just your fucking mind mm-hmm. every failure. You can you can just feel harder because it was deliberate. It was your choice. Every single thing you did was your choice. So every failure you can connect with on such an empathetic level. Mm. And I mean, what was he thinking here? I I just read about this guy's story in three pages in a book, and it shattered me. This <sighs> idea of this guy being on the losing side of every situation beyond his power, being exiled from his country, being exiled from his sport. Yeah. And then dying alone in front of the only thing he loved. He said, I do believe chess is art. I take it on as that. I think everything I do is art. I believe it matters. Yeah. You know? And uh, it just, I mean, his his whole story just completely breaks my heart. Yeah. It's those guys, they're just, they're doomed by their greatness, man. It, yeah. That I, game, the game seems to be like, like a, a cursed totem, like you know, uh, you if you get too close to it, you get burned, like a yeah. Hellraiser cube or something. The yeah. better you are at it, like the more. But it's like one of those things too, where again, if you understand it and you, and you do know about the tragedy and the triumph because you follow the game and you understand the game, you they would say to us, you don't know where he actually lived. Like I can't convey to you the life he had on the chessboard, mm-hmm. but they can. And they can tell you that this guy lived more than any of us ever will hmm. by what he did there. So they're like, they would they would say that his story is not tragic. It's only tragic as far as our eyes can see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, th- those games never die. If you go to chess.com, they will sh- that you can. It's like ESPN Classic. You can watch through all the games. You can talk about and, and with commentary about look at this and look at this and then like. Bobby Fischer's games for the chance championship too. They were saying like it was some of the most miraculous, brilliant play and some of the most staggeringly idiotic failures mm-hmm. in all of those games. Like there's just this whole other world where these guys lived and they could just hear a pitch that we can't. Yeah, because we're not into it. That's a uh, man. I, I, do they make people like that anymore? They're still playing the game. Yeah. Still playing the game. Yeah, it's a, it's um maybe a young champion now who's I've actually been popping up in the headlines mm-hmm. again and stuff. So I mean, it's like it is a thing that it it does never end. Yeah, you there's know? there's some female players too that are kind of uh, making some waves. There's an Iranian woman. Mm-hmm. I think she's a grandmaster. Yeah, yeah, and of course they were shuttered out of the game. Mm-hmm. Bobby Fischer would say horribly misogynist things about female players. I mean, yeah. just ridiculous. But yeah, there there seems to be um. Again, off the chessboard, this prison of the mind. These things these guys do to themselves. I mean, can you imagine hanging out with this fucking guy and he cuts his belly open? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, Knife to belly. Like, I mean, Let's see if it pays off. Yeah. I mean, what if, to be, be a better friend, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Don't kill yourself while you're hanging out with me. Yeah, wait till I leave. I think it's pretty interesting. I, I always find, I find it fascinating that when they're young, chess players are really at their best. Yeah. And I think there's something to the fact that it's because they're young, they came in, and they're the way they're thinking is encompassing all the years of chess history that they've studied. Yeah. And then their new take on it. And yeah, the, absolutely. And absolutely. It does. It, it is, as art, there is those modern contemporary schools. It just keeps evolving and evolving and evolving. Like... Mm-hmm. They say some of these things of Alexander Alekhine's, like the Alekhine defense, it still goes in and out of style. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's like it's always an evolving thing. It's like music. It's like, yeah. fuck, now we like guitar rock again. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's suddenly back in style. Yeah. Like it just keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, the game's been around for 1,500 years. Yeah. It's, the rules have changed a little bit here and there and, and cultures have left their mark on the game and the game has left their mark, its mark on, on cultures. But it's, I mean, 
there's not a lot of other games or sports yeah. that have lasted this long. Yeah, and I mean, like you and I have talked about, not to get too uh, too idiot talking about the world, but I'm gonna do it. Um, Hell yeah! Since since the Russians, you know, were these adept chess champions and and you know doubled all their efforts into it, you can really see how they did outsmart the country with our previous election, mm-hmm. and and how they really did take these things that we never ever ever thought mm-hmm. would happen. I mean, taking it to that level of being like, what if we got in their computers and fucked with their heads? Yeah. They're it masters of that psychological warfare. And, and that was the that was why they doubled down on the things they were good at, because I think they understood or they understand yeah. um, the power of morale. Yeah. Yeah, sapping morale. Absolutely. Absolutely. And That's why they won World War II. And it's funny because <laughs> the argumentative Fox News Trump style tactic they use is called whataboutism. Mm-hmm. That was started by the Russians. Mm-hmm. When you say blah, 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 uh, you know, interference, then you say, well, what about Hillary? Mm-hmm. And people say, but we're not talking about that. And you're like, all right, yeah, but, but, what, but, what about, about, but what about it? Mm-hmm. And it's like all of all That's of these old school, old yeah, school. Russian I mean, like, like just the use of the mind. And I mean, things you can see in Russian literature, mm-hmm. like that's the enemy you choose. You better understand what they're capable of. And I mean, they are just brilliant. Yeah. Just absolutely brilliant. But like, again, there are these people that stand up that are in that country that are like, we don't agree with this line. And, uh, you know, I mean, Bobby Fischer <laughs> hated America. Yeah. Um, and they also said he was the most American guy you could ever meet. He loved hamburgers and big tits. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, and 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 then Alexander Alakine was like, I'm fucking, I'm czarist, dude. Sorry. I'm not on board with this shit. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, St. Petersburg was heavily Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, they were not down with the whole no God thing. Yeah. They were their own people. But all these chess guys, no matter how much they hated and feared each other, they always had this immense respect for each other. That is in all of their writings. Even after fucking Fisher goes off the deep end, all of these people are still like, you don't understand. Yeah. You don't understand because you don't, you can't hear the music. Yeah. If you don't understand the game, you can't hear the music and you can't see the triumph and tragedy that goes on with these guys on the chessboard. You know? We're just not speaking the language. We just can't. And this guy, I mean, I feel like he never really did anything wrong that he wasn't forced to do. Yeah, he was a victim of circumstance. He was I a... mean, the most ridiculous. I mean, two world wars and a revolution. Yeah. Come on. Beats the leader of the revolution at chess yeah. to get out. To get out. Get out of my face. Yeah, and all like fucking 13 fucking 11 guys in a prison cell being like, well, fucking, you're better than me, so you better get out. Yeah. Be, a guy, a, yeah, a guy, you're better at a game. A guy taking your place because you're better at yeah. playing with. All I know how to do is shoot rifles and kill <laughs> kill enemies. No, but you, you're the, good at this. No, game. no, no. These guys were all chess players. Oh no shit! But other this, chess but players. Other chess players said, "You're better than me. You need to get out for the game. I I might get shot, but you have to get out. Wow! Because they need to hear what you're doing. It's kind of amazing because they're all like, the game is bigger than them. Absolutely. No Absolutely, and 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 they're just like again like comedy. Where like they're just they also a lot of the times feels like feel like guys on the sidelines being like, I just want to talk about it, and I just want to talk about why I think this guy was great. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you could talk to Bobby Fischer about old old American chess champions like Paul Morphy, Harry Pillsbury that got Alakine into mm-hmm. the game. He could talk about fucking Pillsbury forever mm-hmm. and the style and the tactics and and just the evolution of the game and how they pushed it forward and how they changed it. You know, yeah. and but what I see about Alexander Alakine's story is just this tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and this thing. I look at his life, and I just I'm like, it's not fair. It's not fair. Mm. I just I feel like I'm looking at a guy in a prison cell. I mean, who knows? I mean, who knows that the the game wasn't an escape for him because of all this bullshit going on in his yeah. life that at least the game had order to it and this was something that he could control he said at the end of his life now i play to forget oh my god it takes my mind off it yeah wow uh well here's here's something uh, so i did a little research because i was thinking about like you know when you practice chess you yeah. know you can go online but for him he's just like looking through books he's setting up pieces on the board and going well, dude I mean, this fucking guy that that Bobby Fischer worshipped, Paul Morphy. I mean, you're talking um, post Civil War time, and people are are just writing the moves down on paper of Rook to mm-hmm. to C two and blah blah. Like 
all of that, and people are able to read it like sheet music and be like, we got to get this guy over to France. Yeah. So, like, that was the thing. I mean, you know, like, like in The Matrix when <laughs> Cypher is t- talking to Neo, he's like, yeah, it's code, but now all I see is blonde, brunette, redhead. Yeah. It's just, can you imagine having such fluency in the game? Yeah. That you see the move list. Yeah. And you're reading it like, you look at it and you're like, oh, oh my God, this is beauty. I, and th- send thing, a telegram. Sure. Yeah. And then, I mean, like the things, again, like with humor, like where you think something is the dumbest fucking thing ever. And then you're like, no, that's actually the most brilliant thing that's ever been said. Because mm-hmm. look what they did there. It was dumb, 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 to the point that it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And that happens on a fucking chessboard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's this quote from this guy, Paul Karras, and I think this really kind of sums up your story. He said it was impossible to win against Casablanca. Against Alakine, it was impossible to play. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've seen two things attributed to this guy with his name in it. Alakine's gun, Alakine's defense, and I haven't seen that in all of the reading I've done about chess about any other player. I'm sure there is, but two things in the glossary of chess terms attributed to your name, it's just astonishing. And that he still held up, but loved by no one for no reason. I mean, the guy was fucking exiled by the world, mm-hmm. by everything. And people that are still into chess are his only champions. It's not the French. It's not the mm-hmm. Russians. It's not the Americans. It's yeah. it's just I fucking chess club. heads Yeah, that are like, this guy is easily top five. Easily. And anyway, I thank you guys for, for going on that trip with me and yeah. not making Absolutely. any dick jokes. <laughs> no, we didn't get to talk about cum, which is we didn't. You know, a tragedy in itself. Yeah. <laughs> I got your alakine right here. <laughs> I really appreciate it. The story means a lot to me. Yeah. Um, this is listeners, we're going to go back to being really stupid soon. But uh, I just wanted to tell you something about something that really moves me Yeah. a lot. So I appreciate you guys listening. Thank you, Matt Rousseau. You're welcome. Yeah, Thank Matt, you, John. Thanks. Thank you, Aaron Pita. Hey, John. Hey. Anytime. And uh, we will see you guys soon. Um, we'll we'll uh, lighten the mood l- next time, to say the least. Have uh, great holidays if you don't hear from us. Yeah. Uh, uh, follow us on Instagram. Yes, please. Profiles and Eccentricity. Yeah. Studio Headphones, studiosweden.com. Enter promo code PROFILES15 for 15% off. Yeah. Uh, please do follow the Instagram. You can get a look at Alexander Alkine, um, Cassie Chadwick. Cocaine Bear. Oliver the Human yeah. Z, the Chuman. Uh, yeah, the uh, Tiki Theater. Tiki Theater. Um, and, uh, and please lo- subscribe to Unpops Network. Um, they broadcast us and uh we love them and uh me and aaron appear on a lot of their other episodes too so mm-hmm. if you are a subscriber you can see me and aaron uh we just did list cast list cast best graphic novels of all time with uh-huh. the tiff myers that was like some of the most fun i had in oh, a long time we nerded time. out hard we nerded out great. super hard also got emotional we did get a little bit emotional we all uh, we all got goosebumps yeah we did we, we got I mean, what, th- three grown men getting <laughs> their hairs standing up over talking about comic books <laughs> <laughs> he said what? And then he was like, <laughs> "Go get him, Tyke." <laughs> brings the house down, oh, dude. Oh man, uh, it was great. And and uh, we've got some shows coming up. You got any shows coming up, John? I'm doing a show as my character Randy Rigg, <gasps> alongside your character oh, Heath God. Barcelona. Oh, January seventh, my birthday, my thirty fifth birthday. Jesus what is going Christ. on? Shit. Uh, at uh, the Akbar um, on Sunset, mm-hmm. uh, Putterball Sisters put that show on, entertaining Julia. You can mm-hmm. see us there January seventh. Um, we're gonna be having a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, me and Aaron do these uh, kind of uh, parody pickup artist characters, mm-hmm. and uh, we're uh, we're uh, really into it. Yeah, we're going for it. So um, this is a stage show where we get to play out with some really stupid ideas. Yeah. Definitely talking about cum on that. Oh hell yeah, we are dumb. <laughs> We are idiots. Yeah. We did bring up The Matrix in Rocky IV <laughs> while telling you this very poignant, beautiful mm-hmm. tale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you got you to gotta bring it down to, to our level. Yeah. You know, so you know like in Rocky IV. So you know like when in The Matrix. <laughs> in The Matrix? <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's about it, right? Do you have any shows? Uh, flappers. When? Uh, uh December twenty eighth. So I don't know if this episode's going to come out by then, but it hey, might not. But go uh, say you're there for me. I put you on a comp list or something. Hit me up. Yeah. Uh, try it out. Try it out. Good set. Thanks, man. Um, guys, check Matt, out. Matt, you have any shows? Oh uh, no. Oh, <laughs> cool. Right. Me either. Yeah, yeah, aside from review. that one. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, check out Bleak. Check out Bleak and Review. Um, it's a great show, and uh, I really always do laugh a lot. Radiston uh, Zaharyev is one of my favorite guests. Kevin Noonan. Mm-hmm. Um, Hannah Michaels' episode uh, mm-hmm. recently just surpassed our episode mm-hmm. as the number one most listened to Bleak and Review. Congratulations. Um, She's and uh, Emily Maya Mills just had a great episode. Mm-hmm. Jorge Rivarol. A lot of names, a lot of talent on that Leah podcast. Leah Kajanian. Um, uh, I, fuck, I do. I really love Noonan when he's on that show. Yeah. Um, and friends of the program, if uh, you guys want to come on comics and, and, you know, do a profile for me and Aaron and Matt. And yeah. You can tell well, us. Minds. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, if you please, uh, you guys have been suggesting people for us to profile. Um, get at us on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Hit us on the Twitter. And, um, we, you know, we would love to do it. Uh, we really appreciate your suggestions. And... The interactions on Instagram and fucking Twitter and... Love it. It really means a lot to us that you guys listen and give a shit and uh, like the show. And uh, we love you. We do. Uh, good night, everybody. I'm John Fahey. I'm Aaron Pita. Matt Brousseau. Bye. Bye.